How you doing? Doing okay. Sorry, I'm just getting my head together about this. Uh, everything. <laughs> Which I feel like that's what I'm doing all the time now. <laughs> like half half of my waking time is spent going, I'm just getting my head together about everything. <laughs> A million years ago, at my very first job, my boss realized that I had some sort of a natural talent and for some reason, a desire to keep working in restaurants. And he took me aside and he said, Randall, you could be really good at this. And you could go far if you could just learn to keep your mouth shut. If you're listening to this, you'll know I took part of that advice. How was the movie? Okay, so I would happily start there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to In the Weeds with Ben Randall. I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. And I just saw a movie that we're not really going to talk about. It's called The Marvels. And because um, it came out yesterday and I don't want to do any spoilers. Although if what you want to do is watch a movie where three superpowered women punch a lot of stuff, that's what the movie's about. And it's great. <laughs> I, I quite oh, enjoyed it. Um, the people who are not going to like this movie are people who will have forgotten comic books and by extension comic book movies are for children. <laughs> it is a very fun movie. Uh, what I will say is that, well, first a question. Did you watch the Disney Plus television show Ms. Marvel? No. Okay. First off, hard recommend. That show is amazing. Disney Plus has made a number of Marvel TV shows, and Ms. Marvel ranks in my top three of all of those shows that they've done. And there's a hard drop-off to get down to, like, Hawkeye and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which are just garbage. But... We rewatched Ms. Marvel over the last couple of days because my dad was in town, had not seen it, and he was going to come with us to see the Marvels. While I much, very much loved that show, right? I'd forgotten how much food is in it. Like, we could do a whole show. It would almost be worth bringing a, a guest on, a guest Pakistani chef on, to just talk about the food through that show. Because there's food everywhere in that show. And I looked and I, I recognized one thing. They were eating samosas at one point. I was like, ah, I know that thing. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. But that show is just covered in food, and it's amazing. Nice. And the food all looks really good. Like, at one point in, spoilers for Ms. Marvel, which is a television show that's like two years old now, They have there's a wedding, and there is a superhero fight in the wedding venue and through the kitchen at the wedding venue. Two things about it. It's not easy for them to shoot in that kitchen which makes me believe it's not a set it feels like they shot at a kitchen yeah and the kitchen is full of cooks and when the main character ms marvel busts into that kitchen she's like we're all in danger get out of here and they look at her and they all go right back to work and i was like haha that's amazing then the bad guys break in and the cooks are like nope and they all peace out and that i did take exception to if my staff and i are working in the kitchen where i work <laughs> and a 16-year-old runs into the room and goes, we're all in danger, you gotta get out of here. We would look at her, and then we would all go back to work. That's what would happen. But if the bad guys busted in, we'd start stabbing immediately. We would be... We'd stab everybody, though. So, like, the <laughs> protagonist is also in danger. We would just start... Without any sort of thought, we would just start stabbing. So that part did bother me a little bit. Yeah, why, why ignore the one and then run for the other? Yeah, but without, then it no was action. interesting... It was interesting to watch that scene again, because this was my second time watching the show all the way through. She, the main character, cowers behind, like, a, a bank of uh, convection ovens. 
and they're all lit with this really deep, rich red light from inside. And I turned to my son and I went, who put red light bulbs in those ovens? Because <laughs> that's not what they look like. It almost looked like the ovens themselves were had uh, like fire inside of them. And that's not what they do. Like that's either a gas or a, an electric oven, but not like a wood burning, you know. It's <laughs> So that was entirely set dressing. But I was like, well, I mean, it looks cool, but that's not what that oven looks like. I think they do that a lot for TV for some reason, um, and uh, the, or or film even, and that's unless it's a hot lamp, right? Those are red. Yeah. Maybe that's all they were. Is they were had been their ovens that had been converted into just uh, <laughs> hot hot lamp warmers. But it was interesting because what makes me think that it was a kitchen that they were filming in as opposed to a set that was built is there was all sorts of stuff that would be necessary for a kitchen but weren't necessary for the scene, right? And so it just felt like had they built that set, they got somebody in to build a kitchen instead yeah. of a set because they had like a, a whole bunch of big uh, tilt skillets and, and steam jackets and they just had all sorts of stuff going on in there and it looked like it was difficult to film like there were blind corners there were things that you like you wouldn't have chosen to put things where they were if you were trying to film in there and so that it felt to me like they were filming in a kitchen that existed somewhere where was it supposed to be Jersey City at like a, a large banquet venue of some sort. I was just uh, thinking about all the times we've talked about uh, architects not really ever having worked in a kitchen and uh, yeah. the ways that you can tell. So, um, but it, with all the kitchen paraphernalia, paraphernalia, it, it was probably cheaper to find a real kitchen than to try to stock a set with all that stuff. Well, that and like, I had a thing I was gonna say. You said not architects not designing kitchens well oh i mean that's the thing like from my perspective it looked like a real kitchen as opposed to being a kitchen in a movie because those are definitely different things right like you can even go to ant-man and the wasp in the very beginning of that movie wasp has a fight in a kitchen and that kitchen does not look like a kitchen it looks like a movie set of a kitchen whereas this one it was also kind of dirty (laughs) it was also kind of like overcrowded right like there's no somebody came in and built a thing that was simply a background for a kitchen fight this looked like we got a hold of a kitchen for a day yeah and why not i mean that that's the way to do it yeah and i'd forgotten about that that was a nice little bit of realism that i was able to to latch on to you know nice that is something i wonder uh um I wonder how many, I mean, most most of the times, I guess, kitchens are um, domestic kitchens, if you see them in a yeah. t- TV or, or film, but I do wonder how many ki- how many kitchens they've uh, people have actually built, or if it's usually they just find a kitchen to film in. Some, I imagine, would be reasonably easy to film in, and others, not so much. Well, the movie Chef, the John Favreau movie Chef, they definitely filmed in a kitchen. Like, that was a built-out place. Because, again, like, you can look at the way that they have to angle shots strangely or where they have to block and stage people for talking to each other and stuff. Kitchens are not good for sightline, for uh, being able to have adult conversations where you're looking at the person and there's not a bunch of crap hanging in your way. Like, kitchens are not good for that. The kitchen in Chef, in the very beginning part, is that. Like, the characters are having a tough time, like, seeing each other and you can tell that they're having trouble figuring out where to put the camera and all that. And so that like, that's a, that's all kitchen. 
Do you think the idea for open kitchens was a Hollywood producer just wanting to find places to film? You guys should build open kitchens so we can see back there. So I don't know about that, but the theater aspect of it can't be denied. There's no reason to have an open kitchen other than you want to add a little bit of theater to the dining room of the kitchen work and you want to add a little bit of theater to the kitchen work of the dining room itself like that's symbiotic to a certain degree where cooks behave a little bit better when they know the guests are watching them and the guests get that little peek behind the curtain thing otherwise yeah. there's no reason to do that that's a terrible idea yeah <laughs> if you're just like i'm building this restaurant i think i want to have the kitchen open and somebody's why and you're like i don't know don't do it <laughs> unless you think it's going to enhance the uh guest experience don't do it yeah, and if you do it, I mean, you want you definitely want like uniforms for your uh, back of house staff. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult in an open kitchen uh, to not curse at the top of your lungs all the time because <laughs> that's what you would do in a closed kitchen. But you'll forget after a while because you're right. Heat lamps or whatever, like there's more lighting in a kitchen than there is in a dining room. Uh, it's hard to see out there, and you'll just forget. And you'll you'll let some let some missives fly, you know. Um, Kayla and I just watched a, a documentary on the Orange Years at Nickelodeon, um, which was sort of the when Nickelodeon was coming into its own when they built their studio in Orlando at Universal. They had their own uh, sound stages and and stuff. That's where they filmed a lot of Double Dare. Um, Is that when they built the Gak Factory? Probably they had a gack fountain or, or a, uh, a slime fountain out in front. But anyway, um, I I had n never went when this was actually in operation. I helped transform it into the theater for Blue Man Group, and now Blue Man ah. Group is gone as well. But uh, um, there was so the you could walk through, you could do a tour of the studio, and I guess like their makeup room and their dressing rooms were miked, and there was a, a window probably more for the makeup than dressing, <laughs> but um. Uh, there's a window, so you're like you go into a little room, and then you can just watch them for a while as they're getting their makeup put on or water, whatever. And I guess it was um, Mark Mark Summers that was the Double Dare guy, right? Uh, sure, I don't recall. He said, uh, "Hey, um, can we can we turn off those microphones? Uh, you know, while we're while we're doing stuff, it's just it's a little intrusive." And they're like, "No, no, they love it." And he's like, "Oh, okay, all right." And then he says, uh, the next day I went and I tore the guts out of all the microphones. <laughs> and he said it like, took him like four months to figure out what had happened or, you know, the, what was wrong. And they're like, everything looks right. right. Um, but, I was, yeah, I mean, the next step is miking the kitchen and putting a glass wall up so that we can all come and just put our hands and faces against it and watch and hear. Well, fishbowl. So yeah. when I was in culinary school, our hotline for the fine dining restaurant class had a window at the end of it. And it was specifically designed for that because we operated two restaurants at the Montpelier campus of, of uh, Necky. And one was like a bar and grill and the other one was upstairs and it was called The Chef's Table. And they the kitchens were on the same floor. And so guests from the bar and grill could like walk down a hall. In fact, they had to. If they wanted to go to the bathroom, they walked down this hallway where there was a window that looked into the kitchen and we hated it so much <laughs> in the kitchen. We hated people like lifting their kids up and the kids would bang on the window and it's like kid you're not at an aquarium and also if you were you're also not supposed to bang on the glass you know um it was fine and you got used to it but for the first the first couple times like you'd get startled i'm surprised nobody ever got hurt you just like you're working along and all of a sudden there's like a fucking person next to you yeah because yeah, <laughs> the line no joke it ended at that window like you could be essentially within inches of just another human being right there who you don't know yeah <laughs> at least at least there was glass 
Yeah. Yeah. No, if it was like a screen window, that would be totally different. <laughs> Every time someone says something, something hot gets flung yeah. through the screen. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. High speed soup right through a kitchen screen window. Yeah. No gracias. I, yeah, like what I do now is such a weird hybrid of front and back of the house anyway. I'd probably be fine in an open kitchen, but I just recall always hating working in open kitchens. It just, yeah, it, felt, it felt too too much like we were under a microscope. Like, no, 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 no. You eat the food. Eat the food. Enjoy the food. You don't need to look at us. We're just back here doing our thing. Yeah. You know? It's like, like, uh, when when I put on a, a tux or the, the times I've worn tux or really dress up, I stand differently. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, man, I feel it. Um, yeah. I would hate to go to work like that every day. I'm like, oh, people are watching. I'm going to stand differently. And then just every night be like, oh, my back. Well, and now there's a cachet to it. Now, you know, there's that meme that is, you know, used to be you saw somebody with sleeve tattoos and they were a dangerous biker. And now it just means that they're a three star (laughs) chef who has a lovely braised pork belly with a balsamic drizzle. Right. Like that has changed. But early on in my career, people didn't want to see the cooks. Right. Like I don't necessarily (laughs) want to see the people who assembled my car. I don't know that I would trust my car if I saw those people because I have a prejudice, because I have a bias. You don't necessarily want to see the cooks, man. There's, they're doing a great job. They're professionals. They're, they're doing what they're doing. But professionalism is defined differently in my industry. Yeah. And so, yeah, it like if you don't have some form of criminal record, that's less professional in my industry. But we are good at what we do. So just don't, don't look at us. Don't worry about us. Yeah. Yeah. The the sleeve tattoos used to mean, um, yeah, like you said, uh, you've been to prison or in a biker gang. Now that means that you own a three star Michelin restaurant or used to own a three-star Michelin restaurant that has since closed. I like your transition there. So, yes, (laughs) we are continuing to see a thing that you and I, we didn't predict it. We just understand that this is a thing that is happening, and we think that we know why. It's from CNN Travel. Michelin-starred restaurant closes because it's too expensive. Steve, was that headline as funny to you as it was to me? Uh, uh, I probably not as funny, but, uh, yeah, it is, it is, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely was like, oh, that's, is, is irony the right word? I don't know, but there's something yeah, there. Yeah. Cause I read it. Michelin starred restaurant closes cause it's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not how it was written. Uh, and so there's this, this, uh, restaurant. Uh, could you pronounce this for me? E I P I C. It's in Ireland. Yeah. So I don't know, cause uh, no. If I okay. were doing an Irish accent, I could say "Oh, you pick," but I don't there know if go. that would be or "E pick, E pick," but I don't know, you know, if it's actually uh, their native tongue Gaelic. I don't know sure. how that would. It, it's probably pronounced much different than that. I feel like it's got too many uh, vowels for Gaelic, but who knows? So after 26 years, this restaurant is closing. It's in Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, because costs are becoming too expensive for both customers and restaurant operators. So, yeah, I feel this one a little bit, right? Like, I can understand what they are saying, which is we charge a premium over what it costs us to bring stuff in. That's how businesses work, right? So you want to run like a 28% food cost. So whatever your food costs you, you want to be charging so that only 28% of your so you're getting everything you're bringing in, 28% of that is going to pay for your food, right? So you're charging 72% more, regardless. How I, I can do that math in my head. I can see it, but I can't explain it for some reason. <laughs> However, if those base costs go up, you need to then either 
increase your costs to maintain that percentage or realize that your model has always been too expensive and close which is what you and I have been talking about. That is not covered in this article, but that's what we're finding. It's just like when Noma closed and they yeah. were like, oh yeah, no, we had to start paying our fleet of slaves. Uh, and it's too expensive. Do you guys know about this? You know about it? when you pay people, you can't uh, be open anymore. <laughs> and everybody was like, I know Noma, that's very sad for you. We're going to get you into some counseling. It's going to be okay. And the guys at Noma were like, we don't know how anybody runs a restaurant. How do you do it without slave labor? And everybody's like, no, 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 it's okay. You're very important. That's not exactly what everybody said, but that's what they should have said. Um, <laughs> yeah. Most important restaurant in the world, my ass. So this is apparently, by all accounts, really great. I mean, if you're running a fine dining restaurant and it's been around for 26 years, you're doing something right. Because it is expensive. It's expensive to go out and eat fine dining. That's just what it is. And so if you have developed a product and a service together that still brings people in often enough that you can maintain for 26 years, you're killing it. Also, that's a pretty good run for a restaurant. Yeah. If I had a restaurant for 26 years and then I closed it, I'd feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't this doesn't see, well and it also says they're going to uh re what where was it? Um a relaunch is planned with a new uh, value for money focus. Right. So the the three-star Michelin restaurant is closing, but they're going to open something else that is uh a little more bang for their your buck if you go there. And it seems as well that um, so it, that their menu tasting menus at at the restaurant were 100 uh, pounds a pop around 123 dollars. So hardly at the extreme of the price scale, which right. is true. I think uh, Alinea is more expensive than that, is it not? By a long shot. Yeah, but it says Belfast doesn't have the flow through of wealthy diners found in the likes of London or Paris. So really, they're they're changing their model to fit their audience, which is what any restaurant the world over has to do yeah. to survive. So I wonder, Steve, if this is cyclical. And I wonder if it's cyclical in a way that we're just going to keep seeing this on, like, when when was the big economic downturn? 08? It's like 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then there was another big economic downturn during COVID, right? I'm wondering if we're going to see these cycles. Because there was this thing that happened in Paris, which was the birth of this thing called Nouvelle Cuisine, right? So what had happened was, I'm not even going to take a shot at the the actual years, but... In the like the middle of Paris, there were all of these like way high end restaurants. You know, the the waiters are wearing gloves. It's like a fifteen course tasting menu, all this kind of stuff. But it became too expensive for the. It, it was not sustainable because they just couldn't get the number of guests in at that price. And you had these highly trained chefs. You had just like these amazing cooks. And so what they did was they all started piecing out of these restaurants and moving into like the 14th Arondismo and like way out into the not the not the suburbs but like the outskirts of Paris and opening these restaurants called Nouvelle Cuisine where they were like, "Look, we can take essentially garbage meat. We can take stuff that needs to be braised. We can take stuff that needs to be pickled and cured and take a long time. We can make exquisite like extremely good food. No tablecloths." Uh, in some cases, no servers. Our wine is going to be really affordable. It's going to be the best $20 bottle of wine we can find, or however many francs that is, right? And they basically made this new model, and the people in the middle of Paris who had been the chefs and the maitre d's and all of this were like, what are these jokers doing? And it turned into the dominant form of food in Paris for decades, right? Because what they did was they said, look, if these folks only have $30 for a meal... I want to make the best $30 meal they've ever had, and I want to make some money at it. And they did. They figured out a way to do that. 
I wonder if we're about to see a boom like that of people going, look, fine dining is dead. We don't have anywhere near enough people to fill these seats. What we're going to do is we're going to make the best braced short rib you've ever had. You're going to walk out the door for 40 or 50 bucks. And if you want to get an amazing bottle of wine, we can do that for you. But we can also get you a darn good one. And it's only going to be 18 bucks. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for it because if we can replace the Applebee's and the Fridays, does Fridays even still exist? I have no idea. Um, with places like that, you know, even if even if it's as um, dish-centric as the short ribs, like this place yeah. is known for that, then go there for that um, and doesn't have to be the freaking Cheesecake Factory uh, every restaurant, um, then, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm here for it because I think going out and getting good why, – why dine out if you're going to get mediocre food? Yeah. Well, and so I'm reading a book right now called Unreasonable Hospitality, written by the fellow who ran Eleven Madison Park for the longest time, right? It's part of the Danny Meyer restaurant empire. And it's this whole book about how they took Eleven Madison Park and made it into what it is now, which is, you know, a three Michelin-starred restaurant. Four stars by the New York Times, whatever. And uh, a lot of what they talked about was... You know, in, in 2008, the guy who wrote the book was like 28 years old. And his whole focus at that point was, we got to get rid of stodgy. We got to get rid of formality. We got to get rid of starchiness, right? How do we make this crazy good food and have it be just this perfect crystalline service structure and have all of the courses hit at exactly the right time and find all of these little sneaky ways to make the people sort of like forget everything outside of the restaurant and they're just experiencing this meal but have it also be hip and fun but not in like a not in a hipster way not in some sort of a uh, uh, artificial way but just like how do we put people at ease and take the formality out of fine dining but keep all the cool stuff about fine dining and the book is actually, honestly, sort of inspirational. There's not much I can immediately transfer into what I do now, but, like, the way of thinking is really interesting to me. Nice. And I'm hoping that's what this guy means when he says he's planning to relaunch with a, quote, value-for-money focus. Yeah. Find the cheaper ingredients. Find the things that are long procedures that get the best out of the ingredients but are more affordable uh, but I mean, like, don't just do mac and cheese unless what he's doing is relaunching as an all mac and cheese restaurant. I'm here for that, you know. Yeah. Um, I have a question, but before that, um, sure. the other thing to note about this, I think, is that if if you're in Belfast, is it seems that it's like these are still going to be the sh- same chefs, right, working at whatever yeah. this becomes. So if that was hella good food, this is also probably going to be hella good food. It's just going to be yeah. more bang for your buck or or whatever. So. Um, definitely worth checking out. I would, I would think. Um, now, if we're not, if we're not talking fine dining, this is the question. If we're not talking fine dining, or maybe even if we are talking fine dining, which I think with a tasting menu is difficult. But uh, you, we see in so many other places to uh, get more m- money for their product, they won't raise the price, but they will shrink the portion. So your bag of chips now has fewer chips in it, but it costs the same. And psychologically, you just buy it and you don't really realize that, oh, this has, you know, four less ounces than it used to. Right. The, the bag is just as big. There's more air, whatever. But that a lot of companies will do that. They will, they will decrease the amount that you're getting so that they do not have to increase the price to, to um, make more money to make their, their margins 
um, meat or whatever. What is there a restaurant equivalent to that? What do you do if you're looking at your thing and, and you're thinking to yourself, they will not pay more. What what do you do? Can you can you decrease portion size? Is that something that that works or how do you how do you play that game in a restaurant? Decreased portion size is probably one of those indicators that a restaurant's going to close. I would say that's absolute last ditch. But and going back to this book that I'm reading right now, they were talking about that because when the economic downturn happened in 08, the people who were able to afford to eat at 11 Madison Park became fewer and fewer. And so they were having trouble because their dining room is apparently massive and it does feel a little bit weird. So they're doing exactly the same service, exactly the same food, but customers were a little uncomfortable in there when the restaurant's half full, right? Because it just feels weird. And so they did need to do that. They needed to cut costs, but they made a decision right off the bat. We're not going to affect quality or quantity of food when we do that. And so they looked at everything else, right? Their line cooks all wore those white paper hats and they were going through like three a night and they had like 30 cook positions. So they said, if we buy them all cloth hats that they take care of themselves, we can save ourselves. And it was something like $12,000 a year, right? Wow. So it's a matter of if I make this change today, but I do this change now going forward forever, how much of an impact can that have? But like, so we've talked about this before, signs that your restaurant is going to close. And when you bring in a restaurant consultant, they'll go for the things that, not always, but you want to make sexy changes so that the client of your consulting business sees that you're doing something. Does this this light flashing over here, is this bothering you? It doesn't it bother me, but I'm glad okay. that it's actually happening. Um, yeah, so and you're not, not having a stroke mention. or anything. There's no, a light no. flashing here in the basement. <laughs> um, so yeah, as when restaurant consultants come in and they're talking about cutting costs, they will always do some sort of a big show thing. And that always makes me think that they don't, they're not really terribly confident. Like, if you're working at a restaurant and all of a sudden the restaurant says to the staff, you can't have coffee anymore, fucking quit. So that restaurant's going to close. Because the consultant is making changes that are not only not sustainable, but that are not really necessary. Coffee is virtually free. When you're brewing coffee in one of those big, like, two-gallon bun things, the, the amount of coffee that goes into that thing that brews up 25 cups of coffee costs like nickels right it's just this tiny amount of money and if you have a consultant who's coming in and saying we're going to fix your your uh cost problems by cutting off coffee to the staff they they are not making the right kind of choices but if you're looking at a restaurant and you're going okay you have somebody on staff who has to go and print and restuff all of the menus every day and that takes them an hour that's an hour you could be having them do something else if you weren't changing the menu so often. Then you look at what the systemic issues are and you say to yourself, well, why do we change the menu so often? Maybe there are things that should remain static and we'll get a better price on them or we can prep more of them at a time and be more efficient. That's the kind of thing that, honestly, the work has to be done in-house. Consultants are never going to see that stuff because they don't know the history of the restaurant. They don't know the procedures and all of that kind of stuff. Unless they're like a really good consultant, which I've never seen in my career <laughs> but what if so uh what if it's the, I mean, we saw with inflation being what it was here and and then with some meat processing plants closing the price for beef really um increased there for a yeah. while um so if you're running like the burger joint yeah. um and uh do, do you say okay now instead of i mean i don't know what they were but instead of half pound we're going to go to to third pound burgers is that is that something that that is a good choice that you think a restaurant could do, or is that still not 
that feels so sneaky and it like maybe it would work but it feels sneaky and and underhanded and kind of mean to do that to your customers in in defense of the of, of restaurant beat the burger place where i worked uh, which was a great job for like a year and a half, and then it was an awful job for like six months, and then I quit, but I was in the process of quitting. Uh, one of the things that they decided right off the bat is that they were never going to um, decrease the quality or the amount of their burgers, the meat on the burgers, right? And they were getting meat from a, a joint out of New York called uh, Pat Lafrida Meats, and that one was so high-end, we were already paying a premium for that, and so let's say that the economic downturn were to happen right now, I don't know that that price would be affected because that's sort of outside of that mainstream, uh, what do you call it, uh, supply chain, right? So a lot of products are that way. We talked about Phil's cage-free eggs. When there was the avian flu stuff that was going on, Phil's cage-free eggs price did not change the entire time. To this day, they're still 42 bucks for a, a 15 dozen case, right? Whereas commodity eggs went all the way up to $120 at one point. Now they're back down to like 19 or whatever. I still can't buy them because my company won't let me. But like <laughs> Phil's never changed. And so there are certain things that like if it's a tent pole, like if you are a burger restaurant, I would still say don't change anything about the burger. But you can look at like everything else. You can look at everything else. I wouldn't change the ketchup. That was another thing that I learned about at burger restaurants. You put that Heinz 57 on the table and you don't fuck with it. You just leave it alone. <laughs> That's what everybody wants. Yeah, maybe you make the best ketchup in the world. You don't. Everybody wants that thing, right? Uh, but there's a lot of stuff you can change that's not a showpiece that's not going to matter right so if you're getting hellman's gallons of mayo in the back to make your garlic aioli that goes with your fries if you get whatever mayonnaise comes in a number 10 can from u.s foods nobody is going to know it's going to be half the price and that's mustard that's pickles that's like all of this back of the house stuff that nobody's ever going to see a label you can make sweeping changes by getting stuff as long as you've tasted it and you know the quality's still okay nobody's going to care or you can make your own pickles, which takes a little bit longer, but it is so much cheaper to make your own pickles if you have the right storage. Ridiculous. Especially when you have a uh, – I mean, if you could plant your own cu cucumbers as well because, as you found sure. out, they seem to just grow like uh... – they Yeah. They go insane. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> at the school right now, I make my own pickles. So, like, we're having a burger day coming up on Wednesday this coming week, and I have pickles that I've made for a – the amount of um, Persian cucumbers that I buy, which are the cucumbers that we make our pickles out of, that yields me two five-gallon buckets of pickles, which then I can slice. And when you slice them, it's they settle a little bit better. So they end up yielding me about nine gallons of sliced pickles. That is still less than the cost of a five-gallon bucket of regular pickles. So I'm getting more than twice as much. And almost almost around twice as much for half the price. It's it's bonkers. Now, you have to know how to do it. You have to have the equipment. You have to have the understanding. You have to have the space. But, yeah, it takes like four days to make pickles. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, a, I think, a fine line between um, uh, betraying your customer and, wanting, and not wanting to raise the price on them. Uh, you know, like I imagine that that would that's always the argument, right? Was like, well, we don't we don't want to raise the price for you guys, so yeah, um, yeah. But then you're you feel like I'm feel like I'm being robbed of a part of a hamburger, um, right? And you got to think about like what what brings people in and don't mess with that part, right? So yeah, if you run a burger restaurant and you're running into to cost issues, 
the last thing you want to do is change anything about the burger itself. Because then you're going to run into cost issues and everybody's going to know that you changed the burgers. And then you're going to run into cost issues and reservation issues or whatever. People aren't just going to come in. So, like, waste is a big one. You know, you have to tighten up everything with waste. You know, so if you are discovering that uh, you, you are not moving the amount of burgers that you have... You've got to figure out a way to turn them into chili. You've got to figure out a way to run a special. Like, you cannot throw food away if you have cost issues. So I would say step one, if you're looking at food for um, balancing your, your your budget during some sort of a crisis, if, you, if you're getting all the way to the point where you're looking at food, waste is step one. Look at what you're putting in the garbage. There has to be a use for those things. And it has to be a proactive use. Because if you're getting to the point where, like, the burger meat has gone bad, we can't fix that part. You yeah. needed to think about that two weeks ago. You know? Right. Right. But you can look at, like, it's as simple as you look at how your cooks are peeling onions. If they're going down three layers, tell them to stop. You go down one layer, and then you're good. Because if you're losing a fifth of an onion every time, every fifth onion you're throwing in the garbage. And that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot of stuff. And onions aren't expensive, but that, especially at a burger place, that adds up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, you're, if you've got whole leaf lettuce coming in to a burger restaurant... And you're pulling those leaves and you're trimming them to make LTOs, right? To make your lettuce, tomato, onion setups that go on all the burgers. And when in the middle where the leaves get kind of little and whatever, the prep cook is throwing those away. And not chopping those up to put into your salad mix to go with your salads on your salad menu. That's just waste. That's made out of money. It's just made out of money. Would you... Okay, here's some would yous. Um, would you... In in that in a situation, if you wanted to say make the make your customers feel better about what they're getting, and you were at a burger place or the burger place, would you get smaller buns? You could definitely do that, so that it makes the burger look bigger. Yeah, I mean you're not gonna put them on a slider bun and make it look ridiculous, but you could <laughs> right. get you could you could go from a five inch bun to a four inch bun, no question. Like those things both exist. Nice. So there and are ways. There are things you can do. Yeah, one of the things we did at Restaurant B, which I thought was a really good move, even though the owners didn't want to do it, this did not come from me. There were three owners at one point, and the third owner said, this has to happen because you all are ridiculous, is when they first opened, they opened with a regular bun, which was a brioche. It was a great bun. It came from Toronto Bakery here in Chicago. It was a brioche-style bun. It was delicious. Whatever. You could also get a pretzel bun. The pretzel bun, far more expensive. And so after about eight months of being open, that third owner said, we're losing our shirts on these pretzel buns. We have to make them be a special thing because people are going, ooh, I can get it on a pretzel bun. So there's a dollar upcharge to get that pretzel bun. All of a sudden, no more problem. And people still thought it was special and people still happily paid it. And then we would consistently run out of pretzel buns because people wanted them so bad. I had a joke there that if we ran out of pretzel buns, some of our guests would starve to death <laughs> because they wouldn't be able to have the food on the on the not pretzel bun, you know. Uh, but if you have something that is in demand like that, that's kind of high price point. If it re if it potentially replaces something like that, like you wouldn't bat an eye about like you can have this salad or you can add chicken to the salad for three bucks. That was our thing. You can have this burger, but if you want the pretzel bun, it's going to cost you a buck. And people were just like, sweet, I've got a buck. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, our yeah. our extra payment on those pretzel buns was about thirty five cents. So we actually made money on that, which was amazing. Yeah, but little little things like that, um, I think are great because, uh, yeah, it, it, when it's just a dollar, but it was a dollar here and a dollar there, it really can add up yeah. for the restaurant in in positive ways, and it's better than surcharge uh, for whatever. A hundred percent. Build it in. Surcharges are always sus, as yes. the kids say. 
Yes. Kids are saying that to me all the time. Now, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I can understand why. Is it sir, yeah. you're sus. Uh, <laughs> um, have you been in a place... Uh, uh, um, is is Chipotle measuring stuff now or weighing stuff? I, I haven't been to a Chipotle in so long. Uh, neither have I. We there, where we used to live, there was a Chipotle between our house and my sister in law's house when she lived in Chicago. And so every time she would come to visit, she would have Chipotle with her. But I don't know that I've actually been into one in a decade. Yeah, it's been a long time for me as well. I feel like there was a dust up about um, people no longer being able to uh, get the extra meat that you know with a wink and a nudge. Right, to the right. to the whoever's making it, but Subway I think encountered the same issue ages ago, um, and then they started pre-doing all of their meat in those in the right. wax paper or whatever it was parchment paper, and now they're to make it seem cooler they're slicing it right. I've yeah not been in Subway in years either, um, so have you ever been in a place where that was a thing where it's like okay this is the French fry scale. You can't just grab a bunch of fries, throw it on the plate. You, this is the weight of the French fries that you're doing, and this is what it has to be because we're um, too many French fries are going out the door, or whatever it is. Not specifically with French fries. I've worked in places where we've done all sorts of weighing, like at um, CJ's. Toward the end, there we were having some of our student employees slice like deli meats and weigh them out in portions. You know, we had a we had a turkey sandwich for a while. We had a ham sandwich where we were slicing and and weighing them out but that was more for just being able to prep like make sure i've got 30 turkey sandwiches for tomorrow kind of thing um beyond that you know portioning is is fairly important anyway you need to be able to do it on the fly so you either need to train your line cooks to just know what it is or have the proper equipment to scale stuff out on the fly or have it done way in advance which all of those things work, and to be honest, if you're if you're doing that as a band aid because you need to cut costs, chances are you should have been doing that to begin with, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes down to how thick are we slicing the cheese for a burger, right? And if we're slicing it really thin, is it two pieces or is it one, or are we slicing it thicker and it's just one piece and that speeds up service? You know, like all of those things should be decided ahead of time. Nobody tells you that when you open a restaurant. Yeah. Right. So like when I went from restaurant b to cj's i came to that job armed with this huge bag of mistakes that i had seen people make right so i I don't know if i ever told you this but i got to cj's and when i discovered that i was going to be in charge of like reinventing their food service program there i immediately made two lists one list is here's shit i care about and the other list was here's shit i don't care about right yeah (laughs) and everybody wants to open a restaurant where it's like well we make everything from scratch we've got lambs in the back we're killing them and we're growing all our own you know wheat and whatever and uh nobody that's unsustainable you can't do that you'll discover that you have to use slave labor in norway and then you have to close your restaurant so what i did was i just wrote down a list and i was like look what do i care about i care about uh roasting my own turkey and then slicing that for deli stuff i care about bringing in a a burger patty that hasn't been frozen but it can be portioned i'll pay for that i care about bringing in ground turkey and making my own chorizo for taco day what do i not care about i don't care about ketchup we had ketchup that was in a dispenser where nobody saw the label i was getting u.s foods monarch brand canned ketchup guess who complained about it zero people complained about it when i bought hot sauce i got cholula because it's in a bottle it was displayed people could grab it and i wanted them to see that it wasn't like monarch brand el hottie <laughs> sauce right so making those decisions early saves you a lot of those heartaches and headaches later yeah 
Now, the other thing is that you can shorten up your I don't care about this list as you go. Once you get good at the stuff you care about, you can go back and be like, oh, maybe I can make my own Chardonnay. Maybe I can make my own bread. Maybe I can cut my own fries. Uh, whether or not that's in the first year or in the 10th year, I don't know. But like having those two lists where you just say to yourself, you know what? I care about having soups that are made in-house all the time. I don't care about what brand of ice cream I get in. It doesn't have to be Bluebell. It can just be, again, U.S. Foods, Monarch brand, fucking vanilla ice cream. Um, I would think you'd be wanting, you would want to make soups because that's part of uh, keeping food uh, costs low, right? Because you're reusing oh, yeah. stuff. Today's um, special is tomorrow's soup. Ladies and gentlemen, if you order the soup of the day at a restaurant, be aware the soup of the day is yesterday's special. However, there are no problems with that at all. And a smart, a, a smartly run restaurant kitchen is doing that shit on purpose. That, that yeah. is done purposefully. It is done with intent. And they are making a good soup out of a good special. There's who, Everybody wins. What, you'd make tomato soup out of the marinara? Yep. Or pizza sauce, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, really good. Yeah. And you blend up marinara and put some heavy cream and Parmesan cheese into it. Guess what? That's really good tomato soup. Yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise, when you're looking at the, the things and like, okay, I've, I'm settled in. We're in a groove. I, I want to look to make my own stuff or move in that direction. How do you tell your I'm going to get a lot – I'm going to save money doing pickles – versus uh, this other thing over here that I'm going to do this myself and oh this was a mistake because it's costing me more money than buying this thing like how do you how do you know well i mean some of it is experience and that's what's nice about sort of coming up in the restaurant industry unless you're one of these people who like your dad owns a restaurant and then you run the restaurant and it's like who is this kid who's never done anything before right um, I know that pickle thing because I worked at a place that made their own pickles and I wanted to know why. So I asked and the chef honestly just said, well, it's way cheaper to make them. And I said, are they better? And he goes, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but it's simple as that. And some, the other thing is that no, no purveyor in the world is going to tell you not to buy a thing. So if I call up my test of produce guy and I'm like, Hey, do you have Persian cucumbers? Cause I'm thinking about making my own pickles. He's not going to think to himself, Oh, I'm not going to be able to sell this guy pickles anymore. What he's thinking is, Oh, I can sell this guy Persian cucumbers. Right? So he's going to go, yeah, they're, they're 26 bucks a case. And in my head, I'm going, wait a minute, a five gallon bucket of, of pickles is $35 a case. And I'll get twice the amount out of that for 26 bucks plus some vinegar. Sweet. I'm thinking that he's not thinking that, right? So the other thing about restaurants is that you don't have to do it more than once, right? Like you can try something out and if it doesn't work, you can be like, well, we're going back to the other thing, you know? Yeah. And if you do tick anybody off during that time, once you've gone back, nobody remembers. Yeah. Well, probably a bad idea to uh, invest a lot of capital in new equipment to do your yeah. own thing if, if it's yeah. just an experiment. So it's not like, well, we're going to sous vide everything now and then everyone hates it and like, oh crap, I have all these sous vide machines. Well, or if you are a burger place and you're like, well, here's the thing. Burger meat costs us a lot. So we've bought some cows and I bought a grinder. <laughs> and then the first time you do it, you're like, I don't actually know how to do this. And then you're stuck with all these cows, right? That's not good. So you're right. I would say that you'll find the biggest overall like budget adjustments come from a, a whole bunch of little adjustments will add up to to one big one but everybody kind of wants that silver bullet they want to be able to like no no i just bought some cows and now we're good but you're going to find that the the smaller changes that accrue over time are going to be the ones that actually benefit you right 
Yeah. Without having to buy a sous vide or a giant grinder or a bunch of hay, you know, in a barn. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cattle feed. But it's also different for everybody. There are people out there for whom I'm sure their white whale is nailing that ketchup and really getting that ketchup down. I'm like, okay, well, there's people out there who already make ketchup. I don't, I don't need to be the guy who makes, like, the best ketchup. I don't need to be the ketchup guy. Somebody out there wants to be the ketchup guy. Fine. That's great. That's not my thing so much. Yeah. Like, the pucker butt guy really wants to be the pepper guy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, and we do that at the school, too. We do all of this stuff at the school. So, I still get people who talk to me, and they're like, ah, you're a lunch lady. And I'm like, let me tell you about how awesome this job is. Because they don't get it, which is not their fault. There's a lot of people who are doing the work that I do in other companies and in other venues where it does sound kind of miserable, right? But we do that stuff. Like, I serve kids who are as young as four up to, you know, eighth grade, and then adults, various adults and teachers and stuff like that. Do you think they expect me to house make pickles for them for one burger day out of a month? No. But when I do it, they love it, you know? So, like, that little thing doesn't save me a ton of money overall, but then the impact of it is huge. So the dividend on that, like, personally and professionally, far outweighs the amount of work I need to do making those pickles. Yeah. So that part's really nice, too. And we do the same thing. I write menus in such a way that our leftovers immediately become soup or a wrap station or they get folded into something else. Or if I am, I do gently sort of guide the people who are ordering catering into ordering stuff that if there's leftovers from their catering, boy, do I put that into our regular menu, you know. I am always looking for how do I use this again or how do I not have this leftover? And I feel like a lot of, that's, it's, it's a bit of a lost art. A lot of restaurateurs and a lot of chefs and a lot of, especially front of the house people, just have no concept of that. They're just like, the food comes in, the food gets cooked, it goes out to the customers, and that's it. But there's all of the trim and waste and leftover and what if you bring in a special and it doesn't sell? What are you going to do with that, right? So that's the stuff that needs to be thought of first. Yeah. Especially with food costs being such a huge, uh, I mean, well, uh, is food cost is less or more than um, uh, people. Labor I guess cost? It yeah, it depends on the restaurant, I guess. It depends on the restaurant. Um, like your Nomas, their labor cost is like, I believe, zero. Uh, <laughs> until they were told you have to pay human beings to work for you, you bunch of douchebags. Um, yeah, labor cost is generally higher than food cost. Although, because I work on a contract basis and it's budget-based, my labor cost and my food cost are both pretty consistent, you know, and they're they're nearly the same, which is great. We spend our, like, the client gives us money to pay people to cook food, and so we spend money on the people in the food. Like, that's, that's what we do. And we're supposed to spend all the money, and we do a great job spending all that money. <laughs> Speaking of, um, we're almost halfway through the year, is that right? Uh, school year? I don't even know. Um... Maybe not. We just started uh, after, in September. Sometime after Thanksgiving, yeah. Okay. Uh, how is your budget? We're I, I clocked in at six grand under this past week, which nice. is wild because everybody else in my district is over budget. I get to look like the guy who's really rocking and rolling. I don't know why we're so. I do kind of like we were we were understaffed for a minute, and so I had a dip, and we haven't spent that labor money yet so we're under like on my labor line we're st we still continue to be under which is great but i don't know my staff also is just really good at what they do nice yeah it's it's entirely up to them like i i run them but like i also let them do the things that they're good at and some of my staff they'll come up to me and they'll i don't have to chase behind them like my staff will come up to me and they'll go 
uh, we have way too many. We have way too much broccoli left. Monday, can you switch us to a broccoli soup? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then A, I don't need to buy more things for the new soup on Monday. And B, we don't have to throw away that broccoli. So it's not only that we're saving money on not throwing away the broccoli. We're saving money on not buying stuff for the mushroom soup. And people love that broccoli soup anyway, so that one works out great. And so <laughs> the fact that my staff does that for me, like that's the work I've already done. That's the work that I've put in over the last seven years is getting my staff to a position where they know that I trust them to have good thoughts about those things, have a good, a good sense about it. And I've empowered them to a certain degree to make those decisions on their own, but then they also always run it by me anyway, especially if it's like, hey, we have this um, – uh, roasted corn we did today do you think that will be good on the salad bar tomorrow and i'll go hell yeah put it on the salad bar tomorrow and then i don't need to buy uh cherry tomatoes to go on the salad bar tomorrow right like things like that they're constantly saving me money and the other thing that i do is i always let them know that i'm like look we are under budget and it's because of this stuff that you do and it allows my staff to have a certain sense of ownership and pride in it which is you don't you can't buy that like i can't yeah. i can't i can't make them feel that they have to come to it that way yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the but you you having the open lines of communication, um, yeah, is is hugely beneficial in that regard because I'm sure you've worked in kitchens where it's like, well, I I could tell the chef that we should do broccoli soup on Monday, but I don't want to get yelled at, so we'll just throw the broccoli away. Yeah, yeah. I worked for a hotel in Houston, Texas, where so yeah, maybe I shouldn't have had suggestions because it was this big hotel in Houston, Texas, and I was right out of culinary school. But I went up to the executive sous chef and I was like, hey, chef, I've got an idea. And he goes, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I need to quit this job. But I was on internship and so uh, I had to wait until after my internship was done to quit. But so, yeah, there are places where, like, they don't want your input. They don't need it. They don't care. You are yeah. a you are a cog in a wheel, a machine thing. And yeah. uh, just do what you're supposed to do and, and, and you're done. Yeah. Look – Look, guy, I don't know. I understand that things are constantly getting wasted and we're throwing money away. But you know what? It's not my money and nobody complains. So we're not changing a thing until. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is when you're dealing with money at that level, right? So you're fine dining, your big hotels, that kind of thing. It is tough to conceptualize the idea of if I don't peel the onion down three layers, that will affect the overall budget. When you're talking about places where a meal is three, four hundred bucks, as a line cook, you're not thinking if I make this tiny change, it's going to affect anything at all. But it all does. It and especially at that level, it does because you're peeling so many onions, you know. And it's easy at that level because there's just so much money flowing in all directions to just not worry about it because there's always money. But the really successful folks at like your eleven Madison Parks and your you know, big hotels and stuff like that are the ones where you have like a uh, procurement director of some sort, like a, a dude in a basement surrounded by walk-in coolers who actually places all the orders to vendors when the different outlets in the hotel are submitting their orders. They submit them to that office and then that guy actually makes the purchases. That's the fella who has a couple of people working for him who consistently those guys go around the kitchens and they're like why are you doing this this way why are you throwing this away why are you looking at this and find those things they find the person who is uh, throwing away all the shrimp shells and heads but then that department is also ordering shrimp base to make stock out of and it's like no, no 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 you can make the stock out of all of that that's why we bring in 
head and shell on shrimp so you can make the stock out of those shells so that we don't have to waste money on shrimp base yeah those are the, the folks doing that work although the cooks should be paying attention to it a lot of times if you don't want their input they're not going to give it to you, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> yeah. you tell a cook too many times to shut up you're not going to get anything out of them right and then and then you're sweating bullets and as you're going over your monthly budget or your yearly budget or whatever you're like i don't understand and yeah. anxiety and yeah well famously alinea at some point Somebody went in and worked, and they were doing a stage there, and they didn't tell them they were a journalist, because they had also gone to culinary school, but they were a food writer. And uh, Grant Ackett's gave this person a one-pound bag of chervil, chervil being this super tiny, parsley-looking herb, and had this person pick out only the perfect leaves. And then they threw away like 90% of the bag. And they didn't compost it. They didn't put it in a stock. They didn't make a puree out of it for a sauce. They legitimately just like threw it away. So my one of my big criticisms of fine dining is like if you're operating at that level and the money is flowing this way and that way and all of that and you get to this level of arrogance where you're like, oh, no, no, I'll buy an entire bag of sherbet, which is what, $4, $5, but I'm going to throw away 90% of it because it doesn't live up to my standards. A, that's rude to the shervil. B, that level of audacity is like, you get to complain about nothing ever again. If that's the level of luxury you in the kitchen are working at, you don't get to complain about anything. Yeah. I would have said no. (laughs) Or I would have said, I'm taking this home then, right? Like, you can search me on the way out. I'm walking out with three pounds, 12 ounces of shervil, you know? (laughs) It just feels so weird. Yeah. You know, another place that has a lot of waste is uh or at least it did when i worked there barnes and noble cafe which <laughs> i feel is like a holdover from like the food counter days at, at sure. department stores perhaps but um like the coffee thing like if they want to do coffee that's fine but you, you can also get soup and huh. um we, we also had i think pizza and cheesecake from the cheesecake factory and you know treats but the soup was like okay you it's a bag of soup you pour it in the crock pot thing and right. it sits there for however long. And I threw away so much soup because you know what people rarely bought at a bookstore <laughs> is soup. Yeah. Like who goes to Barnes Noble for soup? So it was just such a waste. And there's no way. I mean, it's not a kitchen, so there's no way to reuse any of that. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, soup is usually the reuse for something anyway. So uh-huh. um, I don't know what you reuse the soup for to melt snow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just it's like, why do we keep just you know throwing these bags of soup away we should not we should not have soup we should just not have soup and that's like i've, I've gone out of my way to not work for big corporate entities throughout my career uh, you, you you do this ping-ponging back and forth thing where you're like i work at mom and pop self-operated restaurants because that's what the creativity is that's where the fun is and that's where there are no money and no insurance is and then you're like <laughs> oh i need to like make a living and actually have dental insurance or whatever so you go to work at like a hotel and you're like oh I'm a number now and I better chop these onions at the right rate or I'm going to get in trouble. So I've tried not to work for like your Barnes and Noble kind of things, but that does sound like somebody in an office somewhere went, we should have soup. And then they rolled it out to everybody (laughs) and never changed it. And everybody at the local level, even if they're saying to like their district managers, you know, nobody ever buys soup and we just throw it away. And the DMs are like, you have to have soup. It's a a company standard, corporate standard. We're like, all right, well, we're going to fill up the soup wells with just hot water from now on. And if anybody ever asks, we're going to give them the McDonald's line and say, sorry, the soup machine's broken. See what happens. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. 
<laughs> like, does does having soup sell more books? I don't get it. I don't know. Like, oh, I mean, maybe books about soup. Yeah. I wasn't going to buy this $300 textbook, but now that I've tried your soup, give me three. <laughs> it would have been amazing if there was at least one manager who was like, wait, 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 and put up a whole giant display of all of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books right in front of the soup. <laughs> and we're like, let's see if we can draw some attention over here, like a whole soup corner. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh. Or who was it who was the host of that show, The Soup? Was that Joel McHale? Yes, he was just one of them. Get a life-size poster of that guy just standing right next to the soup. Just be like, if you get this and you think it's funny, please also try our soup. <laughs> you know, he, I believe, is one of the hosts for the Great American cook- Cooking Show, Baking Show. Yes, I did see a preview for that. I don't know where, but I did see a little, a little thing about that. I was pretty excited. So he moved from the soup to soup. Yeah. Possibly. Or most well, likely cookies, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't they don't bake much soup on the uh, <laughs> baking shows, do they? Man, I had a really interesting uh, Instagram moment earlier because I had yesterday off. So ladies and gentlemen, we're recording on a Saturday. I had Friday off, which is Veterans Day, parentheses, observed. And the school was doing a professional development day, so I was just here at home. And... Um, What's leading me to this is I have chicken left over that I'm going to probably make soup out of. But I, my daughter wanted to make falafels, so we made falafels. And I was like, that's not going to be enough lunch for me. So I had to go to the store anyway to get yogurt and cucumbers and mint to make a raita. Uh, yeah, sauce. And um, so I bought chicken as well, and I made like a shawarma chicken kind of a thing. And then I just put a picture of it up on Instagram, you know, uh, casual, you know, family lunch. And I immediately got a comment, are you married? And I was like, hmm, how do I take this? Because <laughs> <laughs> how do you not look at my Instagram and think, that dude is clearly feeding more people than just himself, <laughs> right? I am not by myself over here. <laughs> but yeah, I think I will take that chicken and make it into a soup now. This is getting cold out. It's definitely getting cold in Chicago. Yeah. I don't do a lot of soup during the warm months, but yeah, I'll make soup. Chicken and dumplings. It's a big hit here at the house. We this today we celebrated Vets Giving. Nice. Because um we're gonna be traveling. We're gonna do family Thanksgiving at my folks' place, but then we're traveling the next day down to my in laws to and we'll probably have something down there, but Kayla really wanted to get the meal together for just us. So that that was today and um she found a um so she does a uh cranberry pumpkin bread that cool. is really good and she uh, we started doing it as muffins. Sure. Um, it's just more uh, uh, easier to, you know, portion and, and you know, grab or whatever. Um, you don't have to slice it. And then you also don't have to keep poking it and prodding it. That This came yeah, about... It bakes quicker, yeah. Yeah, with the old oven when we were like, we don't know how this works, 1950s <laughs> oven. Um, but anyway, so, uh, she, to, to make sure that the last bit still has cranberries in it, she like held some out and then was just like stuffing them in there when it got down to mostly just batter or uh, right. at the end. Is it batter? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, anyway, so with with the those that were left over, she looked up a recipe because we also had we for like I don't know if maybe from when her sister visited, maybe from a Christmas like two years ago, like uh, an inch two inches of Captain Morgan's. Ah, that's been right. in our freezer for just forever. And anyway, she found a spiced rum cranberry sauce recipe. Huh. And uh, it 
no kidding it, it was amazing that sounds good yeah. it was really good and um uh, i i didn't taste the rum at all but all the spices are there and actually oddly enough i know you've said how vanilla coke reminds you of rum and coke yep kind of drives you crazy this i really got some of the vanilla stuff coming through or some, some of that spice sure. and i was like oh now i understand why rum why vanilla <laughs> coke makes me think of rum and coke but anyway it just went it it went with the cranberries um really well and um anyway that's my that was it was a long story but th- no that's awesome spiced rum cranberry sauce her she got it from the view from great island.com huh. um but uh yeah it, it was it uh, it was a banging sauce the Monday before Thanksgiving, the school where I work is doing uh, parent-teacher conferences. And one of the lessons that the school learned during COVID is parents don't fucking want to go into parent-teacher conferences for a number of reasons. A, if your student's doing fine, it feels like a waste of time to go talk to the teachers about like, oh, little Jimmy's doing a great job. Okay, great. (laughs) B, if your kid's not doing a great job, you don't want to go talk to another adult about it, right? You want to be like, no, little Jimmy's great. What's wrong with you? You know, so fine. So they discovered that... uh, remote parent teacher conferences are great however some parents still want to come in so instead of doing two days before the thanksgiving break they're just doing one except for my crew what that means is we're doing breakfast and lunch and dinner for the faculty who are doing on-site uh conferences just on monday and starting tuesday we're off and that's fine except it's going to be a very long day where we're serving not very many people because we have about 120 faculty and staff yeah i we haven't gotten the set numbers yet but it'll be half of that because any teacher who doesn't have to come in ain't gonna do it right however to get all the way to pumpkin they requested a thanksgiving menu and i was like man because it's gonna be like 40 people you want me to do a thanksgiving menu so we're gonna have some fun with it and we're not gonna do turkey because actually getting turkeys right now is kind of hard there was still again like i understand that this is the time of year to get turkeys but at least for my purveyors like there's been a little bit of a shortage right not a not too bad but a little bit so we're doing like herb roasted chicken legs it's gonna be fine uh they're also all busy they're not sitting down to like a big family meal it's gonna take forever they're gonna need to eat and then get back to what they were doing we found a recipe for a pumpkin pie bar so we're gonna make like lemon bars, except it's pumpkin pie bars. Oh. I'm actually really excited to try this because looking at the picture, it looks amazing. And if I don't have to actually make pumpkin pies, I'm a happy dude. <laughs> I was going to pass. So Kayla, we had we have some cans of pumpkin or had some cans of pumpkin. Um, some was used for the bread. And then Kayla was looking at the other. She was like, okay. She's talking to me day before yesterday probably. And she's like, um, so we can, there's a couple things we can do. Uh, I don't have any milk. Pumpkin pie recipe calls for milk. But on the other can, because one was just like great value or whatever, and the yeah. other from Libby's, she's like, Libby's, though, has one that calls for sweetened condensed milk. Yeah. And one that calls for evaporated milk. Right. Um, and we also have powdered milk for, um, I don't know why exactly we have it, but, you know, we could always make that. and For making biscuits, powdered milk biscuits. Yes. And then uh, use that for because it's fine for baking so you use that instead of regular milk for the one that needed milk but we did the sweetened condensed milk one and and it's uh, it was it's a that's a good pumpkin pie with sweetened condensed milk i did not realize that there were so many varieties of pumpkin pies yeah yeah it's kind of it's crazy. because it's because we don't know what to do with pumpkin right like in central <laughs> and south america they're like yeah it's a squash you roast it with garlic and lemon zest and and you throw you toast the pumpkin seeds and you throw it back on top and you just eat it like it's 
a squash because it's a savory item in, in Central and South America. And up here we're like, mm, we want to fill it completely up to the brim with sugar and then complain that the kids are going crazy. <laughs> but what I will say is um, the pumpkin pie that I made where I put the uh, candied walnuts on the base and then also on top, that thing was amazing. I was really excited about that. You need, you I, need I to, ate most of it, I think. <laughs> you need to publish that somewhere because I just got the uh, – the, I don't actually get the New York Times. I get their cooking emails for some reason, and it was the pie. It's like, all our pies. And the one I made last year with the uh, cranberry lemon meringue yeah. that was just like <laughs> right. Instagram pie, that was still on the list. But there was like three or four different pumpkin pies, but not that. The candied walnut yeah. um, should, be, uh, should be on that list, I feel. Well, so ladies and gentlemen, I should have done this at the top of the show. If you want to be in contact with Steve or I, the best way for, like, in a long-form sense, if you want to send us an email, the email address is intheweedswbr at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. But I have an Instagram, which, you know, you'll always tell when my days off are because I post way more on Instagram. And my Instagram is Chef Ben Randall. I follow a different sourdough baker who, around this time of year, she takes all of her kids' leftover Halloween candy and crams it into a sourdough. And I thought, that looks dangerous, right? Like, the last thing you want to do is bite into a hot, baked peanut M&M, right? You're going to break your tooth, and it's going to be, you know, like like the inside of a Hot Pocket. Or it's going to be, like, thousands of degrees. But I was looking through all the leftover candy we had, and I thought, well, Twix's seem fairly harmless. It's got a cookie in it. It's got chocolate and it's got caramel. And I like all of those things, right? So I made a batch of sourdough. I spread it out to be about, I don't know, two feet by 18 inches. And I put a mixture of guitard, red cocoa powder, and powdered sugar on there. And then I did about 15 chopped up mini-sized Twix bars in there. Rolled the whole thing up, let it rise, baked it. Steve, I got to tell you. It was really good. <laughs> I really hate to admit that, but it was really good. Uh, and I don't know how to feel about that because it's garbage. <laughs> it's absolute garbage. Like the bread, I know how to make sourdough bread. Like the bread itself was really good, but man, having that that like thin layer of cocoa powder and, parm- and parmesan and uh, powdered sugar and the Twixes in there, it's really really good. Nice. I did I see, shocked. I think that I saw on Facebook um, via Instagram, I'm sure, or yeah. uh, um, a, a photo of you making that. And I'd forgotten about it. But when you started talking, I was like, oh, I bet this is going to be the Twix bread because I wondered how that came about. And yet Papa John's is making Twix turds. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe the, that's why it was in my head. I don't know. Uh, I think no, I think that was also safe. I mean, because what else are you going to do? You're not going to do Starburst. She doesn't do like candy, right? Just the chocolates? No, just the chocolate. Well, yeah. that, so that goes back to Halloween for me. If it's not chocolate, it's not really candy. Because you're yeah. not going to put Skittles <laughs> into a sourdough bread. That's no. But like I was looking at Milky Way and I thought that's adding too much liquid to this, right? It's going to melt out. And okay. It's not like the bread's not going to bake right. And I was looking at the M&Ms and I was like, that's landmines. That's not good. Peanut M&Ms, same <laughs> thing. I was looking at Kit Kats. When you bake, because I've deep fried Kit Kats before, and that, like, the the wafer part on the inside compresses, and it's like you're trying to bite into cardboard. It's not good at all. Uh, I was looking at the, oh, there's no Almond Joys left because I ate all those because I like those. Although, I feel like that would have worked as well. And Snickers, that's the same problem as peanut M&M's. You don't want to bite into a hot Snickers. You're going to break a tooth, and you're going to have super hot glue on the inside of your mouth. Like, you don't want that. 
And uh, we didn't get any Butterfingers at all this year, which doesn't bother me in the slightest because I still don't know what that junk is on the inside of that Butterfinger. I don't well, know what that is. And they've recently changed them, and the junk isn't as good as it used to be, I don't think. Okay. The, the new junk is more like, oh, this is like uh, the uh, off-brand. Is that the stuff that used to come in the white boxes or the white white yeah, bags? Yeah, yeah. This is this is off-brand Butterfinger. Yeah. Like, better thumb. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an experiment. It turned out my dad was in town this weekend, so uh, I, I said to him, hey, do you want to try this uh, sourdough I made? And he goes, what's in it? And I said, uh, why don't you just try it? <laughs> <laughs> And he looked at it, he snipped it, and he goes, there's chocolate in here? And I said, sure there is. But it was good anyway. I had it for breakfast today. I was very happy with how it turned out. It does sound like a good breakfast bread. Yeah. Yeah. I toasted it, a little butter. It was good to go. It would make a pretty good just peanut butter sandwich. Okay. Peanut yeah. butter and chocolate being a classic combination. See, I was wondering what to do with banana bread. Kayla puts chocolate chips in it, which is fine. It's it, yeah. that's that classic. It's fine. But I thought, you know what? I wonder if pe- if peanut butter M and M's would work. I did put some peanut butter on the banana bread. It was okay, yeah. but it wasn't like I was like, oh, bananas and peanut butter go together. Yeah. Um, this should be better than it is. It wasn't bad, but it didn't like no sparks flew. So I didn't know if there was any way to do anything with banana bread or not. I've done crushed walnuts and i've done crushed or like uh toasted um sunflower seeds on top of banana bread right before it bakes i bet you could do crushed peanuts and skip the peanut butter part of it but keep the peanut yeah thing that's an idea or i mean if you wanted to get real fancy you could probably do a banana bread muffin where you filled the cup halfway up and put like a dollop of peanut butter in the middle and then filled it the rest of the way up that would probably be pretty good as long as you didn't eat it hot because again hot pocket yeah <laughs> be a thousand degree peanut butter yes we did um we have room to experiment because kayla did buy two uh boxes of almost expired bananas uh from the grocery store via the whatever sure. it is the uh uh flash this, foods yes yes so we have so many bananas in the freezer right now but. We do that at the school occasionally, so I, I like to save the, you know, we come into a Friday and we've got bananas left, and so we'll peel them and throw them in the freezer because they're not going to last a Monday. And then when we have a smoothie day, I pull all those out because then, I mean, nice. you're going to do bananas and ice anyway, but if the bananas are frozen, you know, skip a step. So we don't have any in the freezer right now, but like when we do that, like when you do that, it's, you know, a couple bunches of bananas. When I do that, it's like 90 bananas. That's yeah. <laughs> a lot. So Yeah to figure out some way to use them up but again that's your that's your waste minimization right there is like you don't get to a point where you're like crap i have to throw these bananas away you get to a point where you're like thursday i'm gonna have to throw these bananas away i need to process them right now somehow yes. I need to yes. do something with them yeah and it was it was it was uh that day where the grocery store was like well thursday we have to throw these away so throw them into flash foods so Kayla's like, I'm on it. And then she keeps showing me, look, more bananas. Like, we have enough bananas. We have enough bananas. You know what I realized? I don't know if it happened when Kayla and I were on vacation, but we didn't get our oodles of apples this year. We did not go apple picking. That's correct. We we skipped that. We missed it. I, uh, you know, I'm a little bummed out just because I like the event. But, uh, I mean, I like apples, but I don't, like, love apples. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's, it's, this will be the first year in a while that I'm going to have to actually buy apples to make apple bread. Yeah. Yeah. We have, I mean, we always have apples in the house. So, like, I whenever I go to the store, I buy apples and oranges and bananas. My wife works from home, so she's constantly eating fruit. And the kids, 
like it's my uh, daughter's classic after school snack to come home and have a sliced up apple. So, you know, that they get used up. But no, you're right. Usually this time of year I'm sitting on a bushel of apples or something trying yes. to figure out what to do with them. Haven't, Must... had the, haven't had that issue. I think it's the cucumber hangover that you have from gardening. It <laughs> could be. Could be. I am very much looking forward to planting everything because I'm going to have a, a much broader variety next year. But my daughter and I did plant an indoor herb garden this year in the last couple of weeks. So we have dill and thyme and lavender and two different kinds of basil and catnip coming up right now. What do you put the catnip on? I don't know. My daughter wanted to grow it. I don't know why. I wasn't <laughs> going to say no. You know. Um, and oregano. We have oregano as well. How did your pumpkin spice pickles turn out? I still haven't tried them. I oh, keep okay. forgetting. Keep forgetting to try them. When my dad was in town, I was going to make him try them, but then we had Twix bread, so you know they weren't going to go together. <laughs> Only. <by any> means. <laughs> What's on this sandwich again? Well, it's Twix bread, pumpkin spice pickles. <laughs> <laughs> so we we had a sandwich at CJ's called the Mystery Machine, which was uh, ham and Swiss on banana bread with strawberry jam and like a wilted spinach. And it was really good, but that's a thousand percent stoner food. That's that's all it is. It's just stoner food. But it was a really good, like sweet, savory, interesting. Nobody got it more than once, but people who got it enjoyed it, and they were like, "Well, that was an experience that I've had in my life now." <laughs> Something that every restaurant tour wants to hear on the way <laughs> yeah, out the door. Yeah, yeah, that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. that that sure happened. <laughs> right, man. All right, so we should probably do a follow-up on some of the things that we've covered uh, in the not-too-distant past. Yes. And, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you are not subscribing to Food Safety News, breaking food for every, breaking news for everyone's consumption, I kind of recommend it. There's a chance it'll make you paranoid about everything because they do tell you about, like, oh, salmonella outbreak in this place and whatever. But every so often there are news articles that uh, Steve and I find to be important enough to talk about. And we had talked about previously a series of daycares that were shut down in Canada because of an E. coli outbreak. Yes. E. coli for you, Steve, or E. coli for me would be unpleasant, right? There is a a bathroom emergency sort of a, a component to it. There's also a throwing up emergency component to it. You can get a little dehydrated. It gives you flu-like symptoms. But you and I are going to be just fine if we get E. coli. Not pleasant, but we're going to be just fine. This is like babies. This is kids as young as like three. And it can be mortally dangerous for kids that age. And again, like super old people. So when you see, you know, E. coli outbreak in like uh, retirement communities, people die when that happens. Because like a kid can't tell you. I'm dehydrated. And then right. like kids kids that age will get so dehydrated that they will simply die of that. And that's that's no fun way to go. The um so officials declare daycare E. coli outbreak over. Kitchen not allowed to reopen. You and I talked about this. This was what we suspected was gonna happen. So this was a whole bunch of daycares that were serviced by a single kitchen in Alberta, Canada, and in Calgary. And that one kitchen made one mistake, not cooking meatloaf or and or a vegetarian version of a meatloaf long enough to the point where it would be cooked. The ingredients in that happened to be already infected with E. coli. The temperature at which they cooked them to was not high enough. And then they transported them without temperature controls in place. 
and then a whole bunch of kids got served this stuff. Basically, what they did was they built the correct environment for E. coli to thrive in that food, held that food at the temperature at which E. coli could thrive, and then they fed, fed it to a bunch of little kids, right? Yeah. Quote from the article, the health department reported on October 31st that the final data, the final validation is continuing. So far, 446 patients have been reported, including 356 laboratory confirmed. That's a lot of people to get sick out of one kitchen. Yeah. Quote, inspectors found several violations of health codes in the central kitchen, including cockroaches, pooling water on the floor, and a food thermometer stored in a bucket with uncleanable items, which we talked about in the previous um, yeah. reporting on this, which really just means like pens and stuff. But what happens in this case? Because I've had health inspections before. This is what happens. Health inspectors are human beings. When they come into a kitchen and you show them processes and procedures that you have in place, like HACCP stuff, temp logs, uh, your sanitation certification, stuff like that. When you have that stuff ready to go, they are ready to trust you. When you get inspected by a health inspector and they suspect that you've done stuff wrong and they immediately find things like cockroaches and a pen cup on your desk that also has the thermometers in it then they start really looking for more stuff because then suddenly they don't trust you if you're not doing the easy stuff you're definitely not doing the hard stuff yeah quote the kitchen remains under a closure order and the criteria for rescinding the orders the criteria for rescinding the order has not been met according to the alberta health services uh and then it also talks about how they have uh, a whole bunch of stuff they have to do before they're going to be allowed to reopen and i bet you that to be honest i bet you they won't because the press on this is so bad like steve would you send your child to a daycare serviced by this particular food service operator ever no yeah neither would i well and that's what i think it was was it connected a lot of these are fueling brains as the brand right was that the kitchen as well was that who they were associated with because for me i'd be like if I were if I were a daycare that had been using that kitchen, that wouldn't be happening anymore. Right. And I'm finding it in another kitchen. There's no way that I'm going to risk having to close. And I mean, there's just, uh, you know, no. So Kids U Centennial dash Fueling Minds Incorporated is the parent company that runs all of these different daycares. And if I remember correctly from the previous reporting, what had happened is that they had they found that it was cost effective to close a number of their on-site kitchens and go to a central kitchen, which a lot of places do. But you got to be real careful about how far you're driving that food. And if they also got rid of the equipment that you could use if they had ovens or steamers or whatever to reheat the food on site, if they're having to send it hot, there's only a certain amount of time you can do that. Yeah. If you're catering, if you're sending hot, you have to throw everything away after you're done serving and everything has to be served within, I believe it's two hours, but the uh, requirements in Canada could be different. Sorry, I was looking at your bread. Um, <clears throat> uh, the I know this isn't a, a food uh, pathogen or anything like that, but the um, majority of the Dunkin' Donuts in Chicago went to a central kitchen. Yeah, um, yeah. And it saved them a lot of money. I don't know. Is it? I mean, they're Dunkin', so I don't know. Is it hurt the donut quality? But it didn't help. Right, right. Well, that, and I mean, again, there, there are there are training and consistency issues if you are making food on site for a franchise. Sure. Right? Like you want them Dunkin' Donuts, Mister Dunkin', <laughs> Doug Dunkin' wants all those donuts to be the same, right? No matter who's making them. Right. 
And so it makes more sense in a consistency way to have him make them at a sure. central location and send them out, right? However, then you run into, like, the points of failure there are traffic, making sure that the delivery, like, there's going to be somebody there to receive the delivery. Like, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, right? Making sure that, you, because you're putting literally all your bags, eggs in one basket, right? So if your purveyor of flour shorts you to your centralized production facility, maybe you don't have donuts now for a hundred locations right yeah. as opposed to if one store gets shorted then that one store is having a problem however on the other hand uh as we've seen in the past i watched some i watched an employee at a dunkin donuts fill up their like cream dispenser with buttermilk so yeah you also have to understand that there's a lot of variables that go into staffing and training and maintaining these different locations too so like personally do i want somebody who would knowingly fill up a cream dispenser with buttermilk because they were just handed buttermilk and they were like, well, I don't make the rules here. I'm going to fill this up even though I know it's the wrong thing to do. Do I want them making the donuts too? Well, no, but I also don't go to Dunkin' Donuts. So, like, I don't really care. Yeah. (laughs) You know. And, I mean, but to be honest, I would rather uh, have coffee with buttermilk in it, which I've had and is awful because I think (laughs) I went to that Dunkin' and got coffee on my way to work one day. Um, But I would rather have that than uh, E. coli. E. coli. Right, right. (laughs) So, well, and it, again, it's you feel as an operator, you feel like, well, this is more controllable because I'm watching it. I'm in this building. I can see all the food being made. And so I don't need to worry that one of these other locations is going to get a bunch of kids sick. However, if you make one mistake at that shop, you get all the kids sick. And that's a way worse problem for kids you centennial. It's a way worse problem to say, guess what? You're, shut up, Siri. You're entire operation is now shut down and they're probably i don't know what civil suit laws look like in canada but like they're probably liable for a big like a huge number of lawsuits now too in addition to being shut down in addition to revenue loss because i'm sure parents are fleeing those daycares but if it had just been one and it was like 10 kids that's a much more manageable problem yeah i wonder what i wonder yeah, I, I think you're right. I would think it would be <laughs> a little sus, as long as we're using the term, yeah. if the kitchen reopens. Um, so I would imagine. But but again, if it's if it's being run by the company that also runs the... Uh, we didn't determine if that was the case, though, or not, right? But I yeah, I'd be looking for a new kitchen. Because you'd think... And if it does reopen, I would think imagine that they're going to be extra, extra careful <laughs> with everything. Uh, I would hope so, anyway. They should have been before, because they're feeding kids Kids. tiny kids i mean this appears to all be one thing it doesn't look like it's a food service operation that's sending food to these daycares it looks like that okay yeah that's what i thought owned by the daycares themselves yeah that's what i thought as well so so who knows what's going to be happening but uh, well i uh, do you want to wait six more months and then move to canada and buy a bankrupt daycare (laughs) system steve because we could do that man i i would as a parent just be sending it's like we're packing a lunch for for you from now on yeah and i don't know if we talked about this this is tangentially related a parent came up to me at the school about three weeks ago and this is a parent who has a kid at the school now and has a son who has celiac who just graduated as in ninth grade at a different school because my school only goes k-8 and this mom came right up to me and she said chef ben which is the character I play at the school. Um, <laughs> I need to tell you something. 
and I was like, in my head, oh crap. She goes, I have been packing a lunch for my son every single day this school year because his new school flat out told him to his face, we cannot keep you safe with your celiac. You have to bring your own food in. And I said, wait, what? And she goes, I had no idea how good we had it with you and with your company taking care of the kids. She goes, I never had to worry. I never had to worry about my son's safety at the school. And I was spoiled. And now I know what the other side looks like. She goes, I have to make him a lunch every single day. And my first thing that I said back to her was, your son's the same age as my son, right? And she goes, yeah, he's 14. And I said, make him make his own lunch. man." <laughs> and she got a good laugh out of that. And then she just, she, she actually asked me for my boss's email address. She said, I have got to tell somebody else what a good job you folks do here because now i know what that doesn't look like and so i found out that the school that he goes to it's one of these big national companies it's an aramark a sodexo a compass a meridian it's one of these guys they when they 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 called a meeting with him because as an incoming freshman he had put like on his form or his parents had put on the form i'm celiac and somebody met with him and said you need to bring in your own food we cannot keep you safe wow you right wild absolutely wild what does that mean for uh, uh, contamination? And I mean, for is it? I was just trying to think that if that would is that harder than say a peanut allergy? So no, the way that we do it because we're a nut-free location, so we check all of our labels to make sure that the products that we bring in that are produced are not produced on machines that are shared with you know peanuts and tree nuts. And then we just don't bring any of that kind of stuff into the venue and we're fine. You, what you're getting at is 100% true, which is we have to be very careful not to just like throw flour all over the place because of cross-contamination, right? So when we guarantee to our community, we can take care of anybody who has celiac. We mean that because we prepare the gluten-free stuff in a different part of the kitchen. And it's done before we do anything else. And it's, in many cases, it's still in the bag, right? So we get a gluten-free hamburger bun from Udi's, right? And we leave it in the bag. We leave, they're individually wrapped and we leave them in there. And I've had adults say, wait, why is it wrapped? And I say, because that's the manufacturer wrapping and I'm not opening it. You can open it. And then you also know I didn't open it and chuck a bunch of flour in there. Yeah. So we do those sorts of things. It doesn't take much to develop those policies and procedures. That school... It's not that they can't take care of him. They won't. They are yeah. choosing not to. It can totally be done. And I made sure to let that mom know. I was like, be aware. Their kitchen, because I know that school, their kitchen is bigger than mine. They have more staff. They have more resources. And they are choosing not to take care of your son. So just be aware of that. And she looked very thoughtful on her way out. So I'm sure it sparked other conversations with the school. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that just seems crazy for because that's uh, I, I don't know that, that it seems like a less dangerous um, affliction in some yeah. ways um, because it's not anaphylactic shock, right? Can be. It depends. So there's uh, celiac is weird, and I don't fully understand it. There are because I've always said that there are not levels to allergies. You're like allergic or you're not, but it turns out that's not really true. There is um, what is known as asymptomatic celiac, which is entirely internal. So you eat some gluten and it just like wrecks your 
lower intestine, right? But you don't really know it. It prevents uptake of some uh, nutrients and it stunts your growth and does stuff like that. But then there's also the one where it's like you are immediately throwing up and you have to go to the hospital, right? Yeah. So like there is a range to it. And this boy was in that that like instant, you know, have a crouton go to the hospital kind of kind of range. And we took care of that boy for the entirety of the time that I was at that school. You know, I, I guess why I'm so incredulous is because I'm looking at this through the lens of what you guys do in your kitchen. But if all I'm doing is I'm ordering chicken tenders that are breaded in a in a bag and um, I'm or everything is coming you know, like all I'm doing is heating stuff up. Yeah. You know, that's different. I guess that would make it more difficult um, right. because then I have to find stuff that I can heat up that doesn't have gluten in it and keep it away from all this other stuff I'm heating up that does have gluten. Um you're absolutely right. And one of the strengths of my company and also my location is the amount of stuff we make from scratch. Because like you're saying, if I'm ordering in um, a, well, soup is a great example. If I'm ordering in a beef barley soup because I didn't make soups from scratch, I wouldn't be able to say to my one uh, early childhood teacher who I know is celiac, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. We cook the barley separately. We make the beef soup. And then we put the barley in when we're taking it out. So I have beef soup in the back if you want to have a gluten-free version of it. I can't say that to her because I'm just taking a bag of beef barley soup yeah. and warming it up in a water bath. So one of the – it's kind of a bummer. But one of the advantages we have is that we are required to make so much stuff by hand and from scratch that when it comes down to it, it's everything. It's not allergies. It's allergies it's dietary preferences like you know no dairy vegan vegetarian no shellfish like whatever it is we can just like pull one thing out of the recipe set it to the side cook it separately or remove it completely and make it you know like uh we had two kids who started the school last year who are deathly allergic to sesame i went into our recipe database i found a hummus recipe with no sesame and no tahini in it and we make a, a roasted garlic um or a, a, a garlic lemon hummus now and those kids can have it and nobody cares but i just essentially saved those kids lives you know from me because yeah. hummus gets everywhere by the way hummus is very messy yes so simple things like that however if i'm working for a huge company where the menus are prescribed to me and i'm getting deliveries that are being sent from a corporate office and it's like here's everything you need for your menus this week it's all in bags and boxes there you don't have that flexibility that's yeah. what my company does is that that level of flexibility and accommodation well and something else that i noticed and, and uh with even just what you were saying that i think a lot of people miss that are even trying to do some of these things is that when you're talking about the hummus it wasn't because they requested hummus it's because you normally have hummus but the hummus you used yeah. to have um because it gets everywhere could somehow then uh also get to them and so you needed to remove sesame from the hummus that you're providing everybody else just in case yeah and so, again nobody cares yeah it's it's those failure points again so like i've i've been saying for months now since i came up with this thing you can plan your way out of any upcoming emergency right so i was looking at this and the parent who she requested a meeting she is lovely she keeps apologizing for being a pain in the ass and i'm like you're not a pain in the ass you are trying to keep your kids out of the hospital right like that i totally get it uh she came to us and she was should they had moved and their previous school was nut and sesame free and she was like what am i gonna do and after a meeting with me she felt great and she has felt great and her sons have been just fine for the last two years 
two years of not poisoning a couple of kids yeah i'll change my hummus recipe that's the bare minimum i can do (laughs) yeah yeah it also like i've said this before the job i do is is hard it's difficult it's complicated i love it i'm also really well suited for it so there's not a ton of merit that goes into it this it just turns out i applied for the right job at the right time because like we have a we have a girl who's in seventh grade now and i've been feeding her since she was a kid since she was a tiny little tiny little kid and she also has celiac and one of my first encounters with her after she was um, diagnosed with celiac is she came to me to get a gluten-free sun butter and jelly sandwich which i made for her and i gave it to her and the bread looked too good and she didn't believe that it was (laughs) gluten-free and she started crying and i had like i just you never know what you're gonna do in a situation like that so i was just like hey i'm not supposed to do this come with me and we walked back into the kitchen i got the bag of bread i showed her where it said gluten-free and she was my best friend for like three years (laughs) she's in seventh grade now she's a little too cool for school she hasn't talked to me but she knows we're going to take care of her. All she has to do is ask for some gluten-free shit and she gets it, you know, because that's what we do. This other school just said to a brand new student, nope, you can't eat here. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I still can't really get my head around. This is, like I said, it's almost a month ago now. Yeah. Um, you, you know, Ben, I think uh, I know what kitchen they filmed at for Ms. Marvel. And it was this kitchen in Canada that only has red lights in their ovens to cook their meatloaf. (laughs) There's no heat. It's just red lights. Yeah. (laughs) They thought everything was cooked because of the red light. Hey, it looks fine. Take it out. Right. That's hilarious. A lot of of places film in Canada because it's uh, cheaper. Vancouver. A lot of of films. X-Files. For the most part, Marvel does their stuff in Atlanta, Georgia. So okay. I don't, I don't know, but uh, yeah, that's their, that's their, their home base, from what I understand. I gotcha. A lot of stuff films in Atlanta too. Uh, Atlanta, got, they've got a, a nice little. Uh, they've got some sound stages and stuff that, uh, that like I forget when that, all that was starting to happen. I maybe still lived in Florida at the time, but yeah, they got a, a nice little uh, area there. Yeah. Yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico was supposed to be a hub for that, but they have such a very particular climate that it's tough. Like you have to be filming Breaking Bad there, right? Like it yeah. has to look like that, right? You can do Westerns there, I guess, but yeah, Atlanta can kind of be dressed up to look like a lot of stuff. Yeah. Man, I didn't realize we were going to talk about allergies in my job today, but um, I do. So it's coming up on dinner time. So I do want to kind of wrap up fairly soon here, but we have another breaking news update that we should cover yes i think i know the one you're talking of you probably do this is from metro news but not as you know it uh <laughs> which i don't know what that is i don't either <laughs> woman charged with murder after beef wellington left three people dead ladies and gentlemen you've heard us talk about this a number of times steve again you do not ever need to dehydrate mushrooms to make a duck cell for wellington Unless what you are trying to do is concentrate the poison that is in those mushrooms. I'm just going to say that right now. So, the wheels of justice in Australia grind slow but extremely fine. So, that's a quote from something that I don't know what it is. (laughs) Aaron Patterson, dash, the woman at the center of an alleged poison mushroom plot which left three people dead, has been charged with three counts of murder. Um, I'm going to assume this is covered in australia because it says mum instead of mom yes the mum of two 49 
was arrested at her home on Thursday morning, which would have been a couple weeks ago. And questioned at, oh man, Steve, do you want to try take a shot at that word? W-O-N-T-H-A-G-G-I. One thingy. There you go. Police station in Victoria, Australia. She has now been charged with five counts of attempted murder. So that's three counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder. What the hell, lady? Yeah. Um... She has been remanded in custody and is appearing at Morwell Magistrates Court on Friday. Remanded in custody. Is that she's in jail or does that mean that she's like out poisoning people with mushrooms left and right? No, no, no. She's that means she's in in custody. Yeah. And I do think it is uh, kind of funny that that's almost Morrell Morrell Magistrates yeah, yeah. Court. Yeah. So to catch everybody up, I'm going to read directly from this article. Ms. Patterson made beef wellington for her estranged husband Simon's parents, Gail and Don both 70, as well as Gail's sister, Heather Wilkinson, 66, and brother-in-law, Ian Wilkinson, 68. Heather, Gail, and Don all died days later, having fallen seriously unwell, while Ian spent nearly two months in hospital before eventually recovering. Investigators believe the group ate death cap mushrooms. So, yeah, it's, again, anybody I've spoken to about this, speaking of sus, Wow. If you're going to poison people with mushrooms and you're going to poison people, the joke about in-laws is you hate your in-laws, right? That's been the joke since marriage was a thing. So if you invite your estranged in-laws over for a poison mushroom lunch, you don't eat the food and your children don't eat the food and you and your children are the ones who don't get sick. That's not only suspicious. That's like you've admitted to killing these people. Yeah. I, I do think, this isn't even an episode of Murder, She Wrote. We get it. I think it's funny that Patterson has always insisted she did not intentionally poison her in-laws and says she was also ill after the meal. Really? Because everyone else was on friggin' life support in the hospital. So how yeah. do you eat the same meal and just you don't end up in that condition? Oh, I had, I had a headache. No. Well, probably from laughing so hard because she knew she just poisoned her in-laws. Yeah. That's why she was sick. And the, the, so the in-laws, I guess, uh, the, there's motive that I can see. The other people, I guess it doesn't really say how they knew her. Yeah. And I don't know. It says talks about these people that passed away. I don't know if that's talking about the people. Yes, yeah, so that, that's the in-laws. And then the further three attempted murder charges relate to three separate incidents in Victoria between 2021 and 2022. Yeah, it sounds like she's been practicing. Yeah, yeah. Like, were they just practice dinners for, like, how much? How many death caps do I need? Well, and so another outlet called The Age uh, reports, quote, the death cap mushroom is responsible for 90% of mushroom poisoning deaths. That's worldwide. So, again, A, how do you get them? Because you can't get them accidentally. This is something that you have to, like, find, right? You have to forage for this thing. B... Again, we have to go back to that dehydrator. You do not dehydrate mushrooms except for storage. A, a duxella is made out of fresh mushrooms. If you're dehydrating mushrooms, in this particular case, all you're trying to do is concentrate something. Maybe it's the flavor. Maybe she thinks death cat mushrooms are super delicious, dried out. <laughs> it also concentrates that poison. Yeah. Now... The, so when I was looking at this when we first talked about it, they do look like whatever the really thin shoestringy mushrooms. There's uh, in, Inoki. 
Yeah, there's a stage of their development where they look like that. So a lot of people who uh, who poison themselves accidentally think that they're those mushrooms, but they're people that I imagine are foraging. Yeah. Um, however, if this has happened multiple times with her, that leads me to believe that this isn't accidental, right? That she's... Yeah. Um, you know, then I don't. There, I'm not a mushroomer. I'm. I. I don't know. That there's got to be a way to tell the difference. I don't. I don't know what it is. Um. But there were some similarities with the, with those other mushrooms. So, uh, um. You know, I don't. I don't know what the uh, how you would tell. You tell because you look at the package of mushrooms you're buying and it says the name of the mushroom on it, it says instead death of cat mushroom. It's got a big yeah, skull and crossbones on it. Yeah. Instead of you know going through the woods and looking at something and popping it in your mouth. Pure theory, Steve. Pure theory. Let's talk if this was a a, a murder mystery or a, a a movie or a TV show. Three unsuccessful attempts at killing people with death cap mushrooms in mixed in with other ingredients. Because also here in the article it says one bite of this mushroom is enough to kill someone, causing severe gastroenteritis and eventually organ failure. But how do you get someone to take a bite of one? Well, you don't. So you put it in with other stuff so they don't notice, right? Mushroom duck cell. Me. Let's go back to soup. I would make a mushroom soup. You can get a lot of it into a mushroom soup. The trick seems to be getting enough of it into a person before they notice to kill them, right? So you said that there were three attempts previously. She made this same thing once and just got people sick and was like, that ain't good enough. Made another one, just got people sick, said that ain't good enough, did it again, same thing, and then happened upon this idea of dehydrating it, grinding it up, and increasing that poison. That I can see. I'm making that all up. That's that's entirely speculation. But if if I was only applying that to like, how do I get the best flavor out of this thing? That has to be mixed with other stuff. At some point, maybe I do come around to how do I concentrate this flavor? Now substitute poison for flavor. Yeah. Well, and we know that the police did go to the dump and grab a food dehydrator that yeah. um, came from her house. Was the... the um, theory or the uh you know that's what everybody thought it's like hey that she had this thing and now it's not there so you don't throw away a food dehydrator if you don't think maybe this is evidence of something well and she admitted to lying about it being hers the cops came to her and said hey we've got this food dehydrator with you know your name written on it and she was like that ain't mine and then she later on was like oh no wait yeah that is mine or was i threw it away yeah Probably because it had too many death cap mushrooms in it she didn't want to use it for anything else right like you're not yeah, making I'm not... fruit strips in it for your kids after right that. yeah because it's got your name on the bottom. It says, uh, it's got your name and address. If lost, please return to. So we think it's yours, and you're saying it's not. So, professional opinion, Steve. If you've used a dehydrator to concentrate the mushrooms in an already extremely deadly mushroom, uh, do you ever use that dehydrator for anything else? No, not... Because I think I mean, the answer is no. Yeah, unless I'm making, like, parchment or things that people aren't going to eat. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You, yeah. you know, I don't know if you use a food dehydrator for those kinds of things. But, you know, and, you know, if I'm making my own paper, I don't know. My daughter wears earmuffs all the time. Because she's 11, and 11-year-olds do things that are odd. And we're talking about all the time. She's uh, attempting to wear these earmuffs every single day for a year. They get kind of gross. So we wash them, and then during the summertime, it was easy enough to hang them outside, and they dried off. Well, it's gotten cold outside. I did wash my daughter's earmuffs and then put them into my food dehydrator today because it really is just a non-tumble dryer, and I can <laughs> dial that thing all the way down to, like, 80 degrees, so I'm not going to damage the earmuffs at all. I will need to crank the heat up a little bit to kill whatever nasty ear bacteria is in there, but, like, that'll be for just a little while. 
Uh, but I am pretty sure I can still dehydrate food in there. You know, I'm, I'm not also dehydrating like uh, apple slices or something in there with the right, right. That would be weird. Yeah, I mean, what's the worst going to happen? You get a little lint on something. If it's if it's dried, you can brush it off. Exactly. So that's that's my new working theory is that those previous ones were not only practice runs, but they were practice runs with the refinement of the addition of oh, I need to concentrate this poison somehow. I'm going to dehydrate this already wildly dangerous mushroom. Yeah. To yeah. to concentrate that poison. I think Ben, if nothing else, we've happened upon the plot of maybe our first cozy. You know. I'm still tossing some stuff around, but there's definitely going to be a poisoning aspect to it because it's food. Because we're going to be setting this in a restaurant or I think it's going to be several restaurants. I need to, to, to work out an outline and get that sent over to you soon. Cool. Yeah. Well, now these when people do these, they're series like 14, 20 books or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, we and like I said, I'm, I'm kind of keen on even working through all of your your past restaurants. Um, right. Uh, doesn't have to be in order, but it could be whoever our uh, our detective is or whatever can maybe uh, um, have flashbacks to um, you know we can do this is a prequel or whatever and uh, visit oh, other places. No. So do we do it that way? Is this book the first one published, but it's the last one in the <laughs> detective's career? But then every book after that is a restaurant that I worked at, and it was like this detective accidentally sort of began specializing in restaurant food related crimes because that would be amazing i i'm up for it i like it yeah i like it so now what we need to do is work up the cast list and work from there yeah. <laughs> and figure out where the it's six set. page list of characters that i know well that <laughs> but like also who this detective is what this person's background is and all that like, it would almost be fun to have the person originally be a, uh, a sanitarian, like a health inspector, who then, through being involved in examining that first crime, then gets into actual police work. But because of the background in uh, being a health inspector, gets lobbed all of these restaurant murders. Yeah, yeah. Because it would also be fun to humanize a health inspector. Because I hate those people. <laughs> it's not their fault, but I super hate them. Yeah. Well, and a health like a health inspector could have started in in a restaurant. True. Yeah. I like it. Well, Steve, that is that's everything on my list because I like that you sent me a bunch of stuff about Thanksgiving, but I think we should save this for next recording. Sure. So we can do a bunch of Thanksgiving stuff like right before Thanksgiving. Yeah, I also sent you that thing about that was in our local uh, paper. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell me uh, about that. Only, well, I, I, it, it, it's because it said that he was a popular comedian. Uh, continue without signing up. A popular comedian and cooking influencer is filming his Netflix special here in town. But I went to his Facebook, and I can find zero cooking-related content, so I don't know where that came, was coming from. But I just thought, if anyone is a uh, comedian slash cooking influencer, I was like, "This is isn't isn't this like alternate universe Ben? This is like in some reality, this is Ben." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I I don't I don't know what the cooking part is. Um, so I don't I don't know. I just didn't that just was just an interesting combo to me, and uh, I didn't I didn't. 
that was all. So, but I, like I said, couldn't find anything, so I don't know if it's even worth talking about. So we'll see. Maybe after his so, special comes out. Jacoby Ray. I'm looking at him right now. I, I've never, I have no idea who this person is. Um, it says here, a grilling, this is from the article you sent me, a grilling enthusiast, Ray has also launched a business called Meat So Horny, which offers a variety of dry rubs, hot sauces, and smoked salts. So that doesn't make you an influencer, though. That makes you an uh, entrepreneur with a stupid... Well, it's not that. It's not stupid. Uh, yeah, a, a pun-based food thing that tracks. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, kind of what we do. I, I was going to call it stupid, and then I remembered the KY Deli. I was like, no, that's yeah. we would we would definitely... Yeah, so it just make you an entrepreneur, not necessarily a food influencer or a cooking influencer. Um, I'm seeing a lot of stuff on his Instagram at food shows, which anybody can go to a food show. Yeah, I do see him at a table signing something at the Rhode Island Convention Center with a sign behind him that says Jacoby Ray, comedian slash social influencer. I feel like if you need to write that down, you're not that. <laughs> yeah. Especially when that particular picture has 89 likes. That's a very low number. Yeah. But again, I, mean, I don't necessarily want to cast aspersions on this guy. Just because I don't know who he is doesn't mean he's not somebody. <laughs> right? Yeah. I can't I can't exactly take that on myself. Well, and this is not a comment on how funny he is by any means. He may be hysterical. I do not know. But I but are they giving everyone a Netflix special now? Could I get a Netflix special? Because if they're filming in friggin' Niles, Michigan. Right. Um I've been in that space, ain't big. Um but uh, I mean, I'm, it's cool, I guess, that it's happening. But uh, yeah, I don't know what the ben- what what the uh, uh, yeah benchmark is for getting a Netflix comedy special. Uh, I mean, to a certain degree, why don't you and I film our like right after him? Let's go get let's rent that space out and film <laughs> our own Netflix special, right? Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to spell it differently, and it won't air on Netflix. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what if we had a fully realized product? We filmed it and edited it and all that, and we just called Netflix up and we were like, hey, do you want to buy this thing? And they're like, who are you? And we're like, we're social influencers. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you see our sign? It, I, I yeah, it got 80 likes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's the I, I put up a, a lunch that was so good on Instagram, somebody from Canada asked me if I was married. It was somebody from Canada? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, so, like, it's it's really interesting to me. Like, I love social media. As much as I rip on social media, it's like anything else. There's there's good things about everything, and there's bad things about everything. But I have so many professional, quote-unquote, friends who I have never met in real life, and I never will. And, they're, like, there's a person who runs a bakery in Ontario who looked at that lunch and was like, I wonder if that guy's free, right? Like, <laughs> that's how I took it. That's probably not what that message meant, but, like, I felt really good about myself for a minute. And it felt even better knowing this is, like, an accomplished baker who owns a business. Like, that's a big deal, you know? And that person looked at my lunch and was like, I want some of that. Great, you know? I love that kind of stuff. I do that as much as I can for other people as well because it's got to feel good that way too, you know? Was it... Are you sure it was the lunch and it wasn't the Twix bread because it could have been, this guy's married? <laughs> right. Now, I'm pretty sure it was the lunch, but uh, now I don't know. Now I don't remember exactly. <laughs> like, somebody thinks you're cool? That person's weird. <laughs> and you're, you're making Twix bread and somehow yeah. you were managed to find someone that would put up with that? I'm glad there's still Twix bread left. 
I'm getting, I'm really hungry. It's like six o'clock at night, my time. And I'm <laughs> one of these old guys who eats at like five and is in bed by eight fifteen. So like right now, it's the weekend, so it doesn't really matter. But like right now, my stomach's going. It's time to eat some food and then have some more fucking Twix bread. Come on. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's not, there's not that much left. My dad had uh, some of it and went, wait a minute. Then he had a bunch more, and I was like, all right, gotcha. Will I be buying Twix specifically to make Twix sourdough? <laughs> not unless people want to buy it from me. I will. I will sell you a twix bread but i'm like we don't generally have candy like that in the house and yeah. i'm a big fan of twix i've eaten all the rest of them they're gone and i'm not gonna make them out of like reese's peanut butter cups because that would again add too much of a liquid ingredient to the bread and the bread would get all fucked up <laughs> so homemade pickles saving money uh making your own twix bread at a restaurant you're just gonna be wasting money on twix and uh twix yes, are gonna go yeah. into the cook's mouths so not, oh, not yeah. a not a way to go yes 100 percent I have had this come up, specifically people who have heard episodes of this show, where I've had people go, you seem to hate restaurant consultants. Why don't you become one? And I have said, no, I do not want to do that. Mainly because I don't envy those people that job because nobody does it well. Because every restaurant is so different that there's no good way. Like, I, I'll proselytize here all the time. I'll be like, you need to do this <laughs> in your restaurant. You need to do this. But it all really is very personal. It's very individual. It's very much situation-based. But the problem is, is that restaurant consultants tend to not understand that part of it. They have a program they want to stamp on top of a restaurant and say, this will fix all your problems. So do I want to do that job? No, because the essential mistake that people make is not fixable, really, unless you go and spend like six months at a restaurant <laughs> figure out what the problems are, right? Yeah. Also, the industry is changing so fast right now. Of course I don't want to consult. Because even if, like, I imagine the consultants right now are sweating bullets because every time they suggest a thing, the circumstances change in three weeks, right? Like, I'm going to tell people, yeah, switch to an off-brand mayo because uh hellman's is super expensive well the off-brand mayo company might just close like things are just wild right now you know and so who knows it's offering advice to people in a, in a specific location based like you need to do this with your operation kind of way whew, that's got to be tough to stand behind those decisions because things change so fast right now yeah ah uh, i'm glad i don't have that job <laughs> very glad i have the job i have Yes. <laughs> and so far, everybody above me and the people that I, you know, work with and, and who work for me, they all seem to be pretty happy about that, too. Until you and I write 25 books and I get to retire. Yes. <laughs> Squad goals. <laughs> right on. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have murder mystery uh, restaurant books that you want us to write... Or if you've poisoned a bunch of people with uh, death cap <laughs> mushrooms, what else are we talk about today, Steve? If you're trying to give E. coli to babies, I don't want any of these people to write to me, actually, now that yeah, I've said yeah. all that out loud. <laughs> Find uh, another podcast if you're any not, of these people. Yeah, we're not a true crime <laughs> podcast except for today. Uh, but if you have anything you want to add to the conversation, uh, if you want to be on the show, we had a guest last week. We've got another guest that I'm interviewing tomorrow. So uh, there is definitely, uh, you know, openings for that. Please feel free to get a hold of us. Uh, our email address is in the weeds wbr at gmail.com. My Instagram is Chef Ben Randall, where you can see Twix bread if you really want to. <laughs> uh, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, and Steve runs a website for us. In the weeds wbr.com. And uh, anything we talk about on the show, you can 
get a deeper dive because Steve always puts up the articles on there as well. Um, if I were to make the Twix bread again, although I guess I could send you all the pictures and you could put that up, and I could write a recipe for it, I suppose. Yeah, I could. I could do that. I could write a recipe for the Twix sourdough bread that I made. If any of you are interested, in that. <laughs> I, and I feel bad. Like I put that pumpkin pie up on Instagram and I was like, Hey, look at my awesome ass pumpkin pie. And I had a friend of mine go, Oh, let me get the recipe for that. And I was like, ha, 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 recipe. And I just said to him, I was like, I can't help you. <laughs> I didn't use a recipe. I used a recipe for the crust. That was it. <laughs> Everything else I just winged and it was great. I don't know. So yeah, that's, that's all I've got today, Steve, except I did want to say one more thing. Sorry. I keep forgetting. The previous guest that I had on, uh, Rachel Martin from Oceano uh, Zero Proof Wines, they did send me a bottle of their 2023 Pinot Noir. I have not opened it because what I want to do is I want the full experience. I am going to go to the grocery store probably tomorrow. I'm going to buy some lamb. I'm going to buy some potatoes. I'm going to buy some rosemary. I'm going to make a whole meal and I'm going to try that wine. But I don't want to just like crack open a, a zero alcohol wine and just drink it like i want it to be right what i'm looking for out of getting a good non-alcoholic wine is the experience i love lamb already like i can just eat lamb and what i want to do is 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 scratch the itch of sitting down to a nice meal and having a glass of wine with it right like that's what i that's how i want to evaluate that wine don't get yeah. me wrong after talking to rachel um i am certain they make a good product she is so invested she's so passionate about it and she comes from the right place. It's not like, oh, I found a hole in the market. And I'm going to make a bunch of money selling this dealcoholized wine. Like, she's setting out to make the best possible dealcoholized wine. Um, so I'm, I'm certain what's in that bottle is great. But I just want it. I want the whole experience. I want to be able to evaluate it the way I would evaluate any other wine were I still a drinker. You know. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. I was uh, I was going to ask, um, but that uh, you beat me to it. So good. <laughs> I look forward to hearing. Yeah. Uh, uh, how 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 it is yeah yeah and i i mean it's not cost prohibitive but it ain't cheap so i will uh hopefully enjoy it and i will really drag it out like i will drink that <laughs> very slowly because uh yeah it seems like it's going to be quite quite the ride awesome all right so that's all i've got for today steve cool ditto all right now i need to figure out what to make for dinner for <laughs> In the Weeds with Ben Randall, I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. We'll talk at you next week. Bye-bye.